Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we adore you, and we thank you for this evening and for this opportunity to come together to open your word and to learn from it, to receive what you have in store, and Father, to hear your voice tonight as you speak forth. Father, I pray that it be your word spoken, your heart felt, and that you move upon each of our hearts and lives to follow your will and your way perfectly as you have ordained and for the good of your glory and kingdom to be exposed in our lives and to be uh, shared with those around us for the good of their salvation and their walk with you. In the name of Yeshua, Messiah, we pray. Amen. All right, I just want to give kind of a quick intro on what we're doing here. Obviously, um, for the next 10 weeks starting tonight, we're going to, our, our Bible studies are going to look significantly different. Normally, we just go through a book at a time, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, in kind of an open form dialogue, uh, Bible study digging through. Um, we are intentionally changing things up this time around for these 10 weeks, and it's going to be more of a lecture style um, uh, study. Um, and here's what we're looking at. Uh, I believe fervently that we are in the latter rain days. Scripture talks about the latter outpouring, the latter rains, uh, and so on. I believe that we are in the latter rain days. I believe that we are going to see an increase of signs and wonders and miracles in the Ruach HaKodesh in our lives, in our congregation, in the body of Messiah. Um, and I believe that it's through these things that we will see the most impact in the lives of those who are uh, in need of and hungry for salvation. And they will see the Lord and find salvation through, uh, through His presence in their midst. Um, as such, I also realize, as I'm sure most of you have, that we all come from different background, backgrounds, right? And, and in Messianic Judaism, that's, that's typically the case. In, in our synagogue, you know, we have those that come from a, uh, a more traditional reform uh, or whatever Jewish background. We have some that come from uh, more of a Pentecostal background, some that come from uh, uh, more of a cessationist view of the Ruach HaKodesh or that the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not active today um, and, and so on. And so... As a congregation where we see the Spirit moving in a powerful and mighty way in our midst and we see the Lord doing things uh, among us, it is important, I believe, for us as a community, as a congregation, to have a solid foundation, biblically, a solid foundation of what a move of the Ruach, uh, Ruach HaKodesh looks like, a move of the Holy Spirit looks like. So that's what this study is uh, birthed from. Uh, the title of the study is a Ruach Encounter, uh, a look at or a study of the Ruach HaKodesh of the Holy Spirit from creation through today. And to give you just a quick rundown on what things are going to look like, um, we have 10 weeks total, tonight being the first. The first six weeks are all based out of the Tanakh. Because I know, I know it's hard for a lot of people to understand this, but two-thirds of the Bible start before Matthew. So the first six weeks are all based in the Tanakh. The final four weeks are based in the Brach HaDashah. Two of the first two of those four weeks are based on Yeshua, all right? The, the third week is going to be looking at the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, in the book of Acts. And the fourth week of that, or the final week, the tenth week of the total study, is going to be more of a application discussion, looking at the Ruach HaKodesh as it's spoken of in the Pauline epistles, and how we are to see that and relate that in our lives today um, from the total specter, uh, spectrum of the context of Scripture as a whole. Um, so with that said, we are going to dive in. My, my heart's desire, my prayer, and what I feel the Lord 
uh, I believe the Lord is directing with this, is that we come out of this with, as a congregation, a better, deeper, solid foundation um, on what the Ruach HaKodesh in our midst looks like, what the Holy Spirit in our midst looks like. We are also recording these uh, 10 sessions um, so that we can post them as podcasts online because we have a number of people in our congregation that are just unable to be here on Tuesday nights, whether it's because of work or, or they live too far away to come in on Tuesday nights or what have you. Um, we want to have it available for everybody in the congregation to have a solid foundation, not just those that are here on Tuesday nights. Um, so with that said, we are going to dive into it tonight, um, just as we said with creation. We're going to dive into this uh, looking uh, at Genesis uh, chapter 1. And so I want to set up a um, solid understanding or di discussion, a solid foundation on why uh, we were created in the first place. Um, I, I know that it's a far-fetched notion for a lot of people, but um, in the grand scheme of things, I think history shows us God really didn't need us to muck things up for him, right? So obviously there was a better reason, there was a grander picture that he was looking at in creating humanity. And I think that uh, the, as we look at the overall context of Scripture, I think that the, the reason he created us is very clear. He created us to love us, right? God is love. The, the, the prime foundation of all of the commandments summed down to love. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So he created us to love us, to receive our love. He created us to be in his presence. His presence is a tangible reality. He created us to be in his presence, in his Shekhinah, to experience his presence in our lives day in and day out. Notice after Adam and Eve sinned, says that the Lord came to walk in the garden in the middle of the day, right? They weren't surprised that the Lord came in the middle of the day to walk in the garden. And we have no idea how long he lived in the garden before they ate of the fruit. We just know that they were there for some sort of time frame, and they ate of the fruit, they said, and they were taken out of the garden. But we don't know how long they were there, and it's safe to presume that the reason they weren't shocked when God came to meet and walk during the middle of the day is because this was something that happened every day, that the Lord came to interact with his people every day, with his creation every day. And although we were kicked out of the garden, I do not believe that God's desire for interaction with his creation ever changed, all right? And that's the foundation, that's the, the ground laying for the importance of the Ruach HaKodesh today and why uh, we need to have a good understanding, a good uh, solid discussion on what the Ruach in the body of Messiah looks like. So if you have your scriptures, um, I want to look, John 1, I'm sorry, Genesis 1 tells us the narration of creation itself, the first six days, uh, and the, the seventh day, the day of Shabbat, at the uh, beginning of chapter 2. And we see the discussion of how God created and he created it, uh, everything that we see around us. And each day at the end of the day, he said, and he saw and it was good. And he saw and it was good. And that includes us, right? Uh, he said he, he created uh, Adam and he saw his creation and it was good. Um, we do know also, as we look at John 1, John 1 gives us a deeper understanding of what was going on in Genesis 1, uh, what was going on in the uh, the the foundations of time, what was going on in the foundation of creation itself. John 1, 1 begins with, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and apart from him, nothing was made that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overpowered it. Uh, verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made out through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own 
but his own did not receive him. But whoever did receive him, those trusting in his name, to these he gave the right to become children of God. Or in other words, to restore us back to what we were created to be in the first place, what we chose to walk away from. They were born not of a bloodline, nor of human desire, nor of man's will, but of God. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He, uh, we looked upon his glory, the glory of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. Um, so it's important that we understand, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All right? In the beginning was the word, the, what is, the word is Yeshua. Yeshua didn't just magically appear on the scene at the beginning of Matthew either. All right? Yeshua didn't suddenly come into the picture in the grand nativity scene that people like to put up around Christmas. Yeshua didn't come into the scene uh, when Miriam, Mary, the virgin, became pregnant. Yeshua had always been. All creation was created through him. Right? Yeshua wasn't some new thing. Yeshua is the visible. Colossians 1.15 tells Yeshua is the visible image of the invisible God. So God has always existed, thus meaning his visible image has always existed. Right? There's no other way to get around that, no way to dance around it. So John 1 gives us this correlation to Genesis 1, the correlation of creation, and it gives us a foundation because you've got to remember the Torah was given to explain to us what the people of God are to look like, how we are to live, how we are to walk, how are we to worship, and so on. And the, the Brach HaDashah, or really the, the rest of the scriptures from Joshua through the Brach HaDashah, were given to us to understand better how to do so. Um, I, I often like to jokingly say, or half-jokingly say, that the Torah is the Word of God, and all the rest of the Bible is God's commentary on the Word of God. Does that make sense? Notice it's not man's commentary, it's God's commentary on the Word of God. And so uh, the Gospels and the remainder of the Book HaRashah are to give us a better foundation and understanding of His words. And so here in John 1, we see this important foundation, uh, this tangible expression of creation having been something through Mashiach, something through Yeshua. It wasn't something that was an afterthought. It was something that has always been a part of things. Then we go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, this is when, when Yeshua is being immersed by Yochanan Hamadbil, by uh, John the Immerser. Uh, Matthew 3, verse 16. So he's uh, immersed with John, and then he says in verse 16, After being immersed, Yeshua rose up out of the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, descending like a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice came from the heavens and said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. What a lot of people don't realize is, is that Matthew 3 and then the same narration in Luke 3 um, are, are a mirroring image. In the, found, the, the beginning of Yeshua's ministry, it's a mirroring image of creation. Because creation, Genesis 1 tells us, that God spoke and all things came to be and his spirit hovered over the depths of the sea. Uh, verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1. Uh, now the earth was chaos and waste, darkness was on the surface of the deep, and the Ruach Elohim was hovering upon the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And that light is who? That light is Mashiach, the light is Yeshua. God saw that the light was good, so God distinguished the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So there was evening, and there was morning one day. And so what we see here in the, the narrative in Matthew 3 and Luke 3 with Yeshua's immersion, and the skies opening up, and they see the Ruach descend upon him, uh, and it says it looked like a descend upon him like a dove descending, not that there was literally a dove coming down on him. 
but it was the best way they could figure to explain it. It's kind of like, anybody ever read Shir Hashirim's Song of Songs? Right? Any, you know, Song of Solomon, I think is what some translations call it. The Song of Songs, Shir Hashirim in Hebrew. Um, it, it, you know, that's like a biblical love letter. I mean, it's a lot deeper than that, but it's a biblical love letter. Um, and, and does anybody believe that in writing Shir Hashirim, that the author actually wanted to, um, or actually imagined that his love interest was like a gazelle running in the fields, or that, you know, there were a lot of really weird, and, and we don't understand them today, you know, 3,000 years removed or so, we have no clue how to equate that into love language today, it doesn't make sense. But we know that it's all figurative. We know he's explaining things in the most beautiful language he could. And so in the first century, when uh, the Gospel of Matthew is being written, the Gospel of Luke is being written, they're explaining things in the most imaginable language they could, but it was something far grander than just a dove descending upon his head. Uh, but it talks about how there was the voice from heaven, right? In creation, God spoke and things came to be. So there was the voice from heaven, there was the Ruach HaKodesh that hovered over the depths of the sea, and here in the, the waters comes the Ruach HaKodesh upon Yeshua, and they see the, the, uh, the mantle of the Ruach. They see the, the actual presence of the Ruach HaKodesh descend upon Yeshua, and there is Yeshua, the light himself, the word made flesh that tabernacled amongst us. So all of the Godhead is present in this one scene, and all of creation is being recreated in the foundations of Yeshua's ministry in this one scene in Matthew 3 and Luke 3. Um, anybody ever noticed that before? It's interesting as we look through that, the correlations that we see coming together there, and it's a powerful image, but it's important that we understand that the reason that we're talking about this correlation is because the Ruach descending upon Yeshua in Matthew 3 wasn't the first time we read about the Ruach HaKodesh. Genesis 1 is the first time we read about the Ruach HaKodesh, about the Holy Spirit, uh, because in Genesis 1 it says that the Ruach, the Spirit, hovered over the depths of the sea. Um, the, uh, verse 2, and the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, was hovering upon the surface of the water. So we see that the Ruach HaKodesh, the very foundations of creation involves the Ruach HaKodesh, involves the Holy Spirit, the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God. So for us as believers to either write off the Spirit altogether because we don't live in the days of the apostles, or for us to completely overdo what the Spirit of God does or misunderstand how the Spirit of God works, we are not just diminishing and demolishing what the Lord is wanting to do through His body, uh, through his bride, but we're also undermining what happened at the foundations of creation, right? Because the foundation of creation, we see the fullness of the Godhead in that one incident. It's repeated again in Matthew 3 in Yeshua's life. Um, and, and as we see all of this go on, what we end up doing is we continue through, uh, through Genesis verse uh, chapter 2. Chapter 2 verse 7 says, then Adonai Elohim formed the man out of the dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, so the man became a living being. So now God, in, in Genesis 2, we see God is creating mankind himself. And as he says, he says he breathed the spirit into him. He breathed the breath of life into him. Neshemat uh, I believe, is what the Hebrew actually translates, or what the actual Hebrew is. And Neshema, um, which is the, the root there, Neshema, is a word that uh, is used in Hebrew for spirit soul. So it's something greater than just um, our own individual soul. There's kind of a, uh, almost a divine nature to the presence of the neshama. It's where our soul or our, uh, um, 
the part of us that will never die, our infinity, if you would, uh, meets with the infinity of God. It meets with the, the, the reality of God for eternity, uh, all coming together at once. And so here he talks about how he breathed the breath of life into Adam. And so I believe that in this breathing the breath of life, there was in some ways an impartation of the Ruach HaKodesh, of the Holy Spirit into Adam, because the breath of life that is in us is the presence of God in us. And in uh, Jewish tradition, we talk about the all of creation having a spark, a divine spark within it. And whenever we come together to do something for God, that it's these divine sparks uniting together and becoming a greater presence of the divine spark. And if, uh, if we could get all of humanity, the divine spark within humanity, to come together in unity for God's purposes, then the presence of God would be overwhelming in creation itself. Now, it's not so far removed from what we actually talk about scripturally. You know, Yeshua says, where two or three are gathered together, there I will be also, right? And so we see that there is kind of a, a unique uh, perspective there that actually speaks into what Scripture's talking about. And so here in Genesis 2, we read about Adam being created and Adam being created. God breathed the breath of life within him. That breath of life is the soul, the infinite part of humanity in connection with the infinite part of God, which is all of God, but particularly the presence of God uh, coming together and merging in Neshema, that soul-spirit reality. Um, then we go into, and this is where things start to get a little quirky. We go to Genesis chapter three. <clears throat> this is where we begin to undo everything that God did for us. And this is where the discussion becomes so vitally important for us to understand what's happening. Genesis three, chapter one says, but the serpent was shrewder than any animal of the field and Adonai Elohim made, uh, that Adonai Elohim made. So it said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat? From all the trees of the garden, the woman said to the serpent, of the fruit of the trees we may eat, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you, excuse me, God said, you must not eat of it and you, uh, you must not touch of it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you most assuredly won't die, God, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, I want to take this a little further into Scripture. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 14. Verse 12. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O bright star, Son of the dawn, this is speaking of Hasatan, the evil one, right? Uh, o bright star, o son of dawn, how you are cut down to the earth. You who made the nations prostrate, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of meeting in the uttermost parts of the north. I will ascend above the high places of the clouds. I will make myself like Elion, like the Lord Most High. Yet you will be brought down to Sheol, to, to hell, to the lowest part of the pit. So in Isaiah 14 is where we see the description of how the enemy fell and came into realities here. We actually can go forward to uh, Luke chapter 10, because a lot of people look at that and go, oh, well, that's just, you know, hypothesis, that's just some sort of allegory. But we can go to Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse uh, 18. 
Luke chapter 10, verse 18, And Yeshua said to them, I was watching Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to trample upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names have been written in the heavens. And so what we see here in Luke 10 is Yeshua giving a, uh, a nod to how the enemy uh, fell from heaven, and in particular the narrative, narration that we read of it in Isaiah um, and, and kind of how it all happened. But the reason I go to all that and talk about that passage in Isaiah is because in Genesis 3, the enemy is projecting his own uh, thoughts of himself, his own problems upon us. You know, projection is a psychological term, right? It's, uh, you know, if you have a bad self-image of your, your body or a bad self-image of, of the way you speak or whatever else, and you project it upon somebody else, right? I know I'm a big boy, right? I'm, I'm a kind of girthy guy. I know I got some extra pounds on me, but if I went to Lynn and went, dude, Lynn, you and me were a lot alike, man. You got some extra weight on you. You need to thin down some. That's projection. Lynn may not actually need to lose weight. But I do, and I want to, and I think I should, but I'm too lazy to do it, so I'm going to tell Lynn he needs to do it and hopefully live vicariously through him. Um, <clears throat> it's called projection. We're taking our own issues, our own problems, and putting them on somebody else. Well, this is what the enemy's doing. In Isaiah 14, what we see is that the enemy wanted to be God, right? He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be like Elion the God Most High, he wanted to sit on the throne in heaven. And because of what his ambitions were, he was cast out of heaven, he was cast to hell, he was cast to earth. Um, and as all of this is going on, he's going, he sees that God is creating humanity and everything that's going on. And he goes, look, if I can't have God, none of you can. If I can't be God, none of you can. And so he sees God create humanity. And so he comes to Eve and, and he goes to, to Eve in particular because he knows that Adam's the authority. And if he went to Adam, he, he, he likely is going to have a fight with Adam. But if he goes to Eve, he knows Eve isn't the authority uh, figure in that, that relationship, in that, that family. And so if he goes to Eve and he can get Eve to cave, Eve will get Adam to cave, and Adam will cause the problems too. And so he goes to Eve and he says, did God really say you must not eat uh, from all the trees of the garden, the woman said to the serpent, of the fruit of the trees you may eat, but of the uh, fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat of it, and you must not touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you must sure, assuredly won't die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he's going, hey, if you eat of this fruit, God knows if you eat of this fruit, you'll be like God. You'll be like Elyon. You, and, and he already knows what's going to happen because he's experienced, he's been cast out of, out of heaven into hell because of the fact that he thought he could be like God. And so the serpent says, if you just eat of this fruit, you'll be like God. You'll be like God. He knows he can undo. If they just give in, he can undo what God is doing. Now, what's interesting is we see that this is the first lie mentioned in Scripture. We go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 16. It says, then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. Right out the gate, let us make man in our own image after our own life. We're already like God. We're already created to be like God. Not, again, don't get me wrong, and, and I know I've said this before, don't get me wrong, this is not me saying that because we're like God that we're some sort of little mini deities running around, right? We are not little gods. We are created in the image and likeness of the only God, which means that we are already as like God as we were intended to be. Adam and Eve were created perfect, and as being created perfect, they were created in the image of perfection, which is God himself. 
And so God had already created Adam and Eve in His image and His likeness. And you cannot be more perfect than perfection. You cannot be more like the God than like God. The only step from there is to try and dethrone God and be God Himself, which isn't going to pan out well either. Now, I mean, most of humanity today has actually tried to do that. But, uh, and then we go on to read in verse 26, he says, Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the flying creature of the sky, over livestock, over the whole earth, and over every crawling creature that crawls on the land. God created humankind in His image and His likeness. He created them male and female. He created them. So God's already said He has created us in His image and likeness. And the second thing he's done is he's given us dominion and power, rulership over the things of this world, right? So the, the enemy is cast out of heaven. What's he, what's, he, what's he give up as he's being cast out of heaven? Any sort of dominion that he had, right? Any sort of power that he had, he's lost it. He's left. But he knows that if he can get us, the ones who were created in his image and likeness, the, and the, the image and likeness of God, the ones who were created to be what he wanted to be and could not be, what he wanted to forcefully ascend to and could not ascend to, he knew if he could make us fall, then we would be in the same boat as him. We would be cast out of heaven too, right? Uh, the, the Garden of Eden is like heaven. We'd be cast out of heaven itself. That's where the presence of God comes to dwell with us and so on. We'd be cast out of heaven too. And he knows this. He knows we would experience the same fate that he experienced. But more importantly, he also knows that if we do so, that we'll actually be giving him our dominion, power, and rulership over things of this world. We will be giving the enemy his power back. So notice, we are given dominion over things of this world. We are given power and authority over things of this world. The presence of God resides within us. We walk. I, I like to picture Adam and Eve walking in the middle of the day, hand in hand with God, like a, a child and his father. We get to walk with God. We get to experience God. We get to talk with God. We get to know God personally, intimately. And the enemy's upset because he no longer has that relationship. But the enemy knows that he can get his power back if he can weaken us. He can take it from us. And so this is what he's doing here in Genesis chapter 3 as he's taking that power. Now, where it becomes even more interesting is we were created in the image and likeness of God. Which means not only did we have free will because God gave us free will when he created us. Not only did we have free will, but we had the power, we had the authority, and we had the ability to overcome temptation because we were perfect. We were created to be perfect. We had not only the free will to do what we want, but the free will that what we want should be in line with what God wants and we should be able to overcome temptation. So as we look at creation versus the gospel is what we end up seeing immediately after the recreation of creation in Matthew 3 and Luke 3, what happens next? Yeshua comes out of the water and he crosses the Jordan and he goes into the wilderness. And what happens in the wilderness? He's tempted for 40 days and 40 nights by the enemy, right? And as he's fasting and being tempted by the enemy, the enemy is throwing scripture at him. But one of the scriptures that he says, and this is where it gets really interesting, one of the scriptures that he says, or excuse me, one of the temptations that he says is, if you just bow before me, I'll give you rulership, dominion, authority over all of the world, right? First off, God is God. This is God in flesh standing before him. Second off, that dominionship, that rulership, that power that God has given for all of the things of this world has been given to who? God gave it to us. We gave it to the enemy. We gave it, we handed it over to the enemy. So 
Whereas this temptation may sound like a lie, and the enemy says, I can give you all of this. It's all been given to me. I can give it all to you. He's, he's, he sounds like a lie, but it's true. God didn't give him this. We did. We handed it to him. And Yeshua coming and walking on this earth and offering his life as a sacrifice for us was to restore creation. It was to restore our power and dominionship. Notice as Yeshua is tempted by the enemy, he does what? He overcomes that temptation. He does not succumb to it. So he redeems the mistakes of Eve and Adam. He redeems their giving in to the temptation. He redeems those issues that they walked in. He redeems the failure of humanity. He redeems our sin. And here's where it gets interesting even more so. Yeshua came to bring what? Yeshua came to bring atonement, right? Salvation. Atonement from what? From sin. Sin came into the world because what? We gave in to temptation and gave our dominionship to the enemy because we walked against the ways of God even though the presence of God was a part of our life because we chose to step out of the will of God and ultimately to be kicked out of the presence of God. So Yeshua came to bring atonement, to bring salvation, to bring redemption so that with the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh in Acts chapter 2, we could be restored in our dominion and authority over things of this world. So you see how this all comes back together again, right? We were given dominion and power and rulership over this world, over the things of this world. Guess what are things of this world? Death, despair, sickness, depression. Any sort of illness, any sort of mental disorder, any sort of any of these things, they're things of this world. They're not things of the kingdom of heaven, right? Kingdom of heaven is perfection. So if these things exist, they exist because what? Because we sinned. Humanity, I don't mean the individual. Some, some, some uh, sicknesses are upon us as we see in the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy. Some sicknesses are upon us because of our sin. But sicknesses in humanity ultimately are upon us because of humanity's failure to walk in the will of God, because of Adam and Eve's failure to live out what they were created to be. So Yeshua comes, God himself robed in flesh comes, the tabernacle among us, in order to restore all of this. He redeems our sin, he redeems our mistakes, he redeems humanity's history of failure over and over and over again to show us that walking in our free will to overcome the temptation of the enemy is possible when the power and presence of the living God is a part of our life and restoring our dominion, power, and rulership over the things of this world. <clears throat> when Yeshua was asked to pray, in Matthew chapter uh, 6, we read about this. When Yeshua was asked to pray, or how to pray, it's interesting the words that he chose. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, Therefore pray in this way, our Father in heaven, sanctified is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So right there in Yeshua's prayer, he sums up not only what he came to do in delivering us from the evil one, but he sums up in reverse Everything that we made a mess of, everything that we mucked up in creation or since creation. But notice he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Now, who's got dominion and rulership over heaven? God. 
right? God has dominion and rulership over heaven. Yeshua is our Melech, our King, Melech Mashiach, our King Messiah who sits on the throne for all eternity. He has dominion and authority over heaven and has given us, His creation, dominion and authority over earth. And if we're going to operate properly and walk out that authority that we have over the things of this earth effectively, the only way we're going to do so is if we do so aligning what we're trying to do, what we want to do with His will. What is His will? A spotless bride. What is His will? A bride that cares more about being in His presence. Because remember, we were kicked out of the garden, we were kicked out of His presence. If we take all of of what's happened since creation we dumb it down to just a couple of quick sentences. What we see is this. We were created to be, to live eternally in the presence of God. We sinned. God kicked us out of his presence. But he wasn't done with us. He refused to give up on us. He puts his presence in our midst with the tabernacle and the temple. Literally, his physical presence in our midst. They see the, the Shekhinah, the divine glory of God in the midst of, of, of Israel. So his presence resides within our midst. We cannot be in his presence. Only the priest, the high priest, can go into the Holy of Holies, which is a foreshadowing of Yeshua uh, making the way for us. But only the high priest can go in the Holy of Holies. The community, the people of Israel cannot. We're separated from the Holy of Holies, right? Then we go to the Gospels and we see Yeshua. So now the literal presence robed in flesh. You know, we have the tabernacle and the temple, a temporal place for a house for the presence of God. Now we have an eternal house, the, 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 the uh, very image and likeness, the very uh, real, true presence of God, the Shekinah of God robed in flesh who tabernacled amongst us. So now it's not just us in his presence, not just his presence in our midst. Now he himself, his literal presence is in our midst. And then he does what? Then he pours out his Ruach HaKodesh. His Ruach HaKodesh now resides within us. His Ruach HaKodesh is his presence. So now his presence is literally within us. It's not a matter of can we go or come within the presence of God, but his presence is within us, and it doesn't go and come. His presence is there. And as much as it destroys the heart of God when Adam and Eve sin, when they are physically in his presence, how much more would it destroy the heart of God when we sin, when he is physically in us? So he places his presence in us, restores us, redeems us, provides salvation and atonement for us so that ultimately we can be restored to being back in his presence again for eternity. Notice how God, it's all a cycle. It's all to bring us back to where he originally wanted us to be in the first place. So as we talk about the Ruach HaKodesh, as we talk about the Holy Spirit and the way that the Holy Spirit interacts in our lives and our hearts over the next 10 weeks or the next nine weeks now from this week, Um, What I want us to understand, what I want us to grasp, what I want us to take hold of is that the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is not just something that we haphazardly use and throw away or that we we flaunt and we make a big scene of. I mean, when Yeshua said that, uh, that when Yeshua said, we talked about it uh, earlier in in Luke uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 18. Luke chapter 10, verse 18. If you read that in context, and we only read one simple little part of that, what's going on there, the narrative, but verse 17, going back, one simple verse says, then the 70 returned with joy, saying, and and keep in mind the connection to the 70 elders and so on, right? Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Master, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Yeshua said to them, I was watching Satan fall 
like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to trample upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Again, he's restoring the image that he is the purpose he has created us for. He has created us to have victory over the enemy. The only way we can have victory over the enemy is through his salvation and ultimately through the power and presence of the living God in our lives. So he says, Behold, I have given you authority to trample upon serpents and scorpions. This isn't a new authority. This is an authority we've had since the foundations of creation. We just subjected it to the enemy, and he's giving it back to us. He's restoring us. And over all the power of the enemy, nothing will harm you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names have been written in the heavens. In that very hour, he was overjoyed in the Ruach HaKodesh and said, I praise you, Father, Master of the universe, that you have hidden these things from the wise and discerning, revealed them to your infants. Yes, Father, for this way was pleasing to you. We as believers are still infants. We are still infantile, right? The people he's talking to, they were not the the studious of the the Jewish community. They were not the ones that were were buried nose deep in the Torah and the Talmud every single day of their life, the Torah and the Mishnah every day of their life. They were the ones that were consumed with life, what was going on around them. The ones who were consumed with their face in the books all the time didn't respond to him in the same way that these guys did. The ones who were supposed to be wise did not see what God was doing. But those who were infants, those who were young, those who were not uh, viewed as wise were the ones that were fully alert to what God was doing and God was using them. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father and who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then turning to the disciples, He says privately, <clears throat> Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings desired to see what you were seeing, yet did not see, and to hear what you were hearing, yet did not hear. Everything God has done from the time that he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden has been for the single purpose of restoring us to being in his presence again. The single purpose of restoring our dominion and authority over the things of this world. And here's where it gets little tricky. Revelation tells us that heaven and earth will be rolled away, the new heaven, new Jerusalem will descend upon the earth. So in all reality, prophetically, scripturally, where will we spend eternity? Here. A better here. For the love of God, let it be a better here. But a better here. A perfect here. A restored, a redeemed here. A here that we as humanity have not destroyed. Not just destroyed in the sense of, you know, we're tearing the eco uh, ecological dominion apart or whatever, but literally we've destroyed it with sin in our lives. Look, this, this world is going to die. That's just all there is to it. This, this massive chunk of dirt is going to die. The heaven and earth will be rolled away, the new heaven, new Jerusalem will descend upon the earth. I long for the day when the feet of my Messiah return to the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives split in two. Because I know the time has come that we will spend eternity in his presence again. But in the meantime, while we wait for that very hour, which as far as we know could be tomorrow for all we know, right? I mean, we're looking at scripture. Scripture says, Yeshua says, no one knows the hour or the time but the Father, right? 
So we can look at Scripture and we can get a pretty good idea of what's happening around us and go, eh, it could be any day now. could still be 10, 15 years, 50 years off for all we have, but it could be any day now. So it's more important now than ever before that we realize the importance of walking in the Ruach HaKodesh in the presence of the living God and His Holy Spirit. Let His Holy Spirit operate through us in such a mighty and powerful way that it changes the hearts and lives of those that we come into contact with because what we have been given the presence, the power, the anointing of the Ruach HaKodesh for is not for yours and my sake, but for the sake of those that are out there. We have been given the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to restore our dominion over the things of this earth. And I don't mean just being able to walk up to a lion and shut the mouth of a lion, although that'd be kind of a cool party trick. I don't mean that we can go out and name all the animals like Adam did, because that was part of his dominion. But what I do mean is, spiritually speaking, scripturally speaking, the dominion that we have been given is over the things that the enemy does here. Because we have dominion over the enemy. We have dominion over Hasatan. He likes to make us think we don't. He likes to demean us and destroy us because he wants to constantly be bringing humanity down to this place where we don't see ourselves as worthy for the presence of the Lord or that, that we think we can be like God even though we were already created like God. But the reality is is sickness, despair, death, depression, all of these sorts of things are all things of this world. They are things of the enemy. They are things that are given here because of sin. And we've been given dominion over sin. It is our duty, it is our purpose, being bought by the blood of the Lamb, being covered in the blood of the Lamb, being anointed with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, it is our purpose in life to bring that life to the world around us. So over the next nine weeks, we're going to look in depth at what it looks like when the Spirit of God moves among humanity, at what the impartation of the Ruach HaKodesh looks like. There's a continual term and reference that's used throughout the Tanakh called the mantle of the Spirit of God. We're going to look at what that is and how it's passed from one to another. We're going to look at what authority we actually have in the power of the Ruach HaKodesh and the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to lay a solid foundation so that as a community, as a congregation, as a kehillah, here at Mayim Chaim, we will on, all be on the same level, we'll all have the same understanding scripturally. Now look, I'm not going to pretend like in 10 weeks we're going to be able to cover every single word of the scriptures where it deals with the Ruach HaKodesh. There are going to be things we're going to skip over just for the expediency of time. But we're laying a solid foundation here so that as a community we are able and willing to be able to allow the Ruach HaKodesh to move in our midst in a way that God wants. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God wants to live in our midst. He wants to operate in our midst. He wants to use us to bring freedom to others. And I don't mean just going and breaking people out of jail because it doesn't pan out well, you end up in there too. He wants us to bring freedom to the oppressed. Notice in that passage in Luke that they come and say, hey, the demons, we're casting demons out in your name. Yeshua walks up and says, get up and walk. 
He doesn't beg for it. He demands it. And that same power, the Ruach HaKodesh, is in us. It's there. We have to walk in the enacted power of God. We have to walk in the overflow of the power and presence of God in our midst. And we have to understand that this power, this authority was given to us at the foundations of creation itself and that everything God has done since then has been done to restore us in His presence, to restore His presence in our lives and to restore our dominion and authority over the things of this world, not for our sakes, but for the kingdom. And just like Yeshua says in Luke, in the passage we read there, don't rejoice in the fact that the enemies are scared of you. Don't rejoice in the fact that you're able to cast the demons out. Don't rejoice in the fact that the enemy quakes at the reality of who God is in our lives. But rejoice that our names were written where? In heaven. In the Lamb's Book of Life. We have to understand, and this is one of those core principles of Maim Chaim. We have to understand and desire that everything we do be Yeshua centrally focused. We don't have the power of God in our lives so that we can do whatever we want. We have the power of God in our lives so that we can do what He wants for His kingdom. So that we can walk in His ways. So that more will be saved. More will be set free. More will find the love of God that He has for His bride. So that when Messiah returns for His bride, it is not just you or I that are there waiting, but a larger body of Messiah. We've been given the power of the Ruach HaKodesh so that we can affect the world around us for His glory. Far too often, for far too many within the body of Messiah, we have diminished what the presence of God in our lives looks like. We've drummed up because, look, you've got to understand, there's a lot of people afraid of what it looks like when the power of God, the Ruach HaKodesh, is here. It's... It, it can get a little wily out there sometimes, right? When the Spirit of God moves and people start falling, if you've never seen that or experienced it before, it's a little frightening, right? People start speaking in tongues, it's a little frightening. People start prophesying, it's a little frightening. Somebody gets up out of a wheelchair and starts running laps, it's a little freaky. We're beyond frightening, it's freaky. But it's what God wants. It's what God wants to do through us. And so because there are those over the, the centuries that have been afraid of what the presence of God looks like, or because they've realized, and you've got to understand, if the presence of God of the Ruach HaKodesh is not working in us, that means what? We are living in, you let a word, S-I-N, sin. The sin in our lives is hindering the presence of God in our lives. So there are those over the centuries of the body of Messiah who for one reason or another, either they were afraid or they were buried neck deep in sin and the Spirit of God wasn't able to operate through them. They've created theologies that destroy the power of the Ruach HaKodesh in the life of the believer today. There are denominations in the body of Messiah that teach that the presence, the power of the Ruach HaKodesh was only during the days of the apostles hasn't existed since. It's just not scriptural. It's just not there. It's also not the experience I've had in the body of Messiah. I stand before you today because of the healing work of the presence of the world. I should have been dead years ago, whether we're talking car accidents or lung issues and 
uh, asthma that the doctor said if I walked out the front door would likely kill me. I've been in car accidents that there's no real reason why I was able to walk away. I've seen things happen because of the power of God. I watched my grandmother. I watched my grandmother, who we believe has been a closet believer for several years, on her deathbed in hospice, profess faith in Messiah and watched the way that the presence of God in her life changed her countenance. She died two days later. But as far as she looked at that day, it looked like she could have gotten out of bed, went home, and lived a long life. The presence of God changes our countenance, not because it's like some luminary light that comes on, but because the presence of God overtakes and overcomes. It becomes our countenance. The countenance of God becomes our countenance. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May He make His face to shine upon you. Right? It's not some ethereal concept. It is literal. Moses came off the mountain and his face was radiating. You know what people see when they see the presence of God in our lives? They see light. The radiant glory of God. We have to understand that cessationism is wrong. It is inactive. The Spirit of God has not ceased to operate in the midst of His people. We may have ceased to operate in it, but it has not ceased to operate in us. We also need to understand that there are aspects of the way that we, and by we I mean the body of Messiah or parts of the body of Messiah, understand how the Spirit works or think we understand how the Spirit works, it's just flat out wrong too. Right? We're going to get into some of that. We're going to dive into some of that. Like the fact that far too often we see the gift of tongues being used in the wrong way, being used in the wrong scenario at the wrong time. Or people trying to prophesy and it not coming through and us not stoning them. Just throwing that one out there. But, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't operate in these ways. He does. But with everything that God does, there is order. And so it's important as we move through this study that we as a community grasp the order in which God operates in His Ruach HaKodesh in our midst. And the reality that he does still operate in his Ruach HaKodesh in our midst. And he wants to overfill and overflow us with his Ruach. Not for our sake, but for his. He wants to use us and he wants to use his light that's shining off of us, that radiant glory, his countenance shining off of us to impact the lives of those around us. And here's why I think this is so important. You've heard me talk about this a lot lately. We live in a day and age where preaching the gospel is ineffective. It's ineffective for the same reason why we trump up cessationism. Because people see the sin in our lives. The world we live in today, people look straight through garbage. You can run your mouth all day long, and if your life's a total wreck, they're going to look through it, straight through it, and they're going to see the trash. They're going to see the mess that you are, the mess that we all are. But if we submit our lives to the Ruach HaKodesh, 
entirely submit our lives to the Ruach HaKodesh, they see God in our lives. And when they see God in our lives, then they're willing to listen to us preach the gospel and know that it's real. Because they're not just looking at a pile of junk anymore. They're seeing God stand before them. You and I are God, but they are seeing God in us stand before them. When they see signs, miracles, and wonders, they see God in their midst. And their hearts are open to the truth of the gospel. In these days that we live in, not only is it called the post-truth era, where there is no finite truth anymore, we know there is. That's what people say, there's no finite truth. What's truth for you may not necessarily be truth for me. And my truth may be different than that person's. But we know there is one truth. And in the post-truth era, it is more important that we operate in the latter rings that are being poured out upon us than ever before. The early rains were Acts 2. We've been in the rainy season since then, and we are walking in the latter rains now. In Israel, during the days of an agricultural uh, society, um, you had the rainy season. You still have the rainy season today, which is from November to, April, uh, November to March. That rainy season is vitally important. But you get way more out of the early rains than the latter rains. And if they're going to be early rains, they're torrential, frightful downpours in October. And if you're going to get latter rains, they're torrential, frightful downpours in April. And when those early rains occur, it will produce a phenomenal harvest. And when those latter rains occur, it will produce a phenomenal harvest. Acts 2 was the early rains, and there has been a phenomenal harvest that occurred, and we've seen minimal harvest and growth since then, and we are in the latter rain days now, and there will be phenomenal harvest again. But we need to get on board with what God says about his Ruach HaKodesh, with what the Word of God says, so that as a whole, we can affect the community around us with the presence of God. Amen? Avraham Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, we adore you. Father, we thank you above all else for the power and the presence of your Ruach HaKodesh in our midst, for your salvation, for the blood atonement that was poured out for our sins, washing us clean that the presence of God could reside within us. Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves your creation, that you never gave up on us, even though it was clear and obvious we gave up on you. Father, we thank you that even today, even in the midst of this group of people here who each in our own ways have our own issues and our own scars and our own wounds and our own failures, that you have redeemed us and restored us and cleansed us and brought healing and redemption into our lives so that your power and presence could operate through us. Father, I pray right now for a fresh imparting a fresh anointing of your eternal Ruach HaKodesh upon each and every person that is here and every person listening to this study. Father, I pray that the power and the presence of the Ruach HaKodesh will flow in a mighty and powerful way through us in these days, these latter days, for the good and the glory of your kingdom and for the salvation of those we come into contact with each and every day. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua Messiah we pray, and everyone says... Amen.